Good morning, Crossbridge family, and welcome to Crossbridge Online. It's so good to be with you this morning. And if you're a guest with us, I especially want to welcome you and just say thank you so much for joining us. And from wherever it is that you're joining us, along with every single other person who kind of watches in with us, I want you to know that my hope and my prayer for you is simply that you would be able to take one step forward in your faith towards Jesus, because that's what we are all about here at Crossbridge. And, and I'm so excited because we are just past the halfway point in our four-week series called The Grass is Always Greener, where we've been able to connect with Grace Church down in Logan, where we have live services uh, happening on Sundays and our virtual time together here on Sundays. And so both churches are connecting and both pastors are preaching. And it has just been so awesome. And I just want to say thank you Thank you, thank you, thank you for all the feedback that you were giving to Pastor Dave and I about this, you know, experiment for four weeks. How did it work? Do we like this? You know, is Crossbridge going to like his teaching? Do you guys like, you know, what was going on? And it has been so positive. And I just want to say thank you to both churches for being so kingdom-minded, not church-minded, as we've, you know, done this together. And I do want to tell you as well, that, um, you know, Pastor Dave, if you are watching right now with us, that it took everything in me today not to preach in a suit. I was so excited to go home after last Sunday and put my suit on and be like, do I look good? Is it fit to me? Am I wearing my suit? But then I realized if I was preaching in a suit, that would not be working with what God gave me because this is really my every day. This is who I am. And I'm going to live that out with us today at Crossbridge. So Dave, thanks for uh, messing my whole week up and making me think about suits. But I absolutely loved being able to sit and to learn. It was fantastic last week, so thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and it is interesting because I am learning more and more about myself, and I know more about myself now than I feel like I ever have. But something you might not know is, I, I can be a real big dork sometimes. And I know some of you are like, I already knew that. But, but how I kind of dork out is, I sometimes get really obsessed with numbers. And to the point where, um, <laughs> this might surprise you or it might not, but in college, while I was studying for my Bible degree, I took electives that were solely based around accounting. I took accounting for fun because I just absolutely love numbers. So every year when tax season comes around, um, the middle of January hits and I start to get really excited, almost like people getting ready for Christmas. As W-2s and 1099s roll in, I'm like, oh, it's happening. And, and it, it confuses my wife. She trusts me with it and says, I, I hate this stuff. You do it. And I absolutely love it. And so you don't need to be surprised that I have already completed my taxes. I've already gotten my refund this year. But what was so funny is this year, as I began to fill out my taxes, I submitted it at the end and something happened that usually happens. And if you've ever done your own taxes, there's a bar that'll pop up if you do them, depending on your program, about get, getting audit protection based on the risk of being audited. Now, I should tell you that as a pastor, we have very unique tax laws, and there are a lot of different little nuances that can really mess you up. And every time I've gone to a tax professional, I realize they're a regular person tax professional, and I've gotten raked over the coals. So I've learned to do it myself. And so I know that with Schedule C's and you know, all those stuff, it's like, oh, okay, easy. But this year, it flagged me for a different reason. It was a higher at the far end of the risk of me getting audited by the IRS. And the number one reason that they put on there was, um, it, it cracked me up. Your charitable contributions do not match the amount of income your wife 
and you make. So basically, TurboTax was telling me, based on what you make, you give away too much money. And I, I, it kind of cracked me up, and I was like, this is hysterical. It was clear that we give too much to church, we give too much to clean water initiatives, we give too much to goodwill, and they were like, there's a problem with this. And, and I'll be upfront with you, my wife and I have committed from the very uh, first day of our relationship, especially when we got married in combined incomes, that we would always give 10% of what we make away. And we've also made it a goal to try to give a little bit more every single year than what we did last year. And so it's just increased trying to be intentional about living a generous lifestyle. But I, I realize more and more that this desire to live a life of generosity looks so different than the normal approach to money around us. So much so that my TurboTax preparation and computer program said, something's wrong with the way that you handle money. And it was comparing me to what everyone else does around me. Why? Because that's not what successful people do with the amount of income that we make. Success in our culture is really designed about making sure you take what you could give away there. It doesn't change your bracket, but you could save it. And, and if you didn't want to save it, you could acquire something better than what you have or move up in the financial world with these different investments that you could make. And the only way that we can measure this success that we're being taught by our culture is by comparing what we make and what we acquire to everyone around us. I think we can agree that the expectation that we should be, or that we hear is, you should keep moving up in your jobs. You should strive to make more money than you're making now. Even if it's enough, making more will be better. You will be able to buy a bigger house, a nicer car, a newer phone, or current clothes. You'll have a faster computer you'll have a greener lawn than your neighbor. You'll be able to take that more exotic vacation that all those other families are taking and you think, we're gonna go now. Why? Whether you want it, you need it, or you can even really afford it, we always look at what someone else has and think, when I get to that point, I'll find peace and satisfaction. The expectation that our culture tells us isn't, how content can you be? How much can you give away? Let's compare those things. No, it's on how much we can acquire. And it reminds me of a quote in a fantasy series that I read. Um, you know, it's called The Wolf of the North. There's a very old wise man who's training up the young warrior who's going to take over everything. And the warrior is overwhelmed with, this young kid is overwhelmed with what is supposed to happen. And he says to this young hero, Wolfric, it seems that other people's expectation makes life harder than it needs to be. Crossbridge, Grace, can I get an amen to that? Throw it over there in the comments that, that sometimes everyone else's expectations on us and what we should do just makes life harder. And, and I'll be candid, when that flag went off in TurboTax for a split second, I wondered, am I doing something wrong? What should I be doing differently with my money if the tax software says, heads up, this is wrong? And, and I thought for a second, if people looked at my W-2s, if they looked at all of our finances and where we give and what we spend, 
If they looked at how much we made, we saved, and we gave away, would they think, boy, what a stingy family. What a negligent family. What a generous or parsimonious, wise or biblical family. How would they look at my finances? And it begged me to ask this question, would people see Jesus in how we handle what God has entrusted to us? Regardless of what anyone else does with their finances, if someone were to look at my books, would they see Jesus in the way that we handle it? And I'm hoping this morning that you're in this place of asking the same question because our churches are made up of completely different people who make all different amounts of money. I, I, I can't just speak to one group today and say, for those of you who are struggling with finances, let's talk about how not to compare. Or for those of you who make you know, a surplus of money, how not to, I can't do that. Instead, what I would love for us to do is to simply look at what Jesus and the Apostle Paul have to say about money and contentment. Pastor Dave really addresses last week the idea that God trusts us all with different talents. And he took that to, you know, sh- to kind of point out our abilities and our skills. And we just got to give God what we, what we can with what we have and do something with it, not just bury it. But I think the same is true, that all our capacities are different in how we handle finances. And God does trust people differently with different amounts of finances. So do me a favor for today. Don't start applying this to your neighbors and looking at their lawns. Don't start, you know, spouting things at your spouse or your kids to say, this is what you should do, but this should be an invitation into a conversation. But if we were to look at our lawn, the lawn of our finances, are we looking like Jesus right now? Or are we competing with other lawns? My goal today is not to guilt you into giving more money away. I don't want to do that. It's not to manipulate you because Pastor Dave and I have secretly talked about how Grace and Crossbridge are struggling financially and we'll get them to get. No, that's not it at all. God has been generous to our churches and faithful. I, I, I want to go over this today because I know that the truth that's found in here for us, in the words of Jesus, this asks us, do we compare ourselves with Jesus not do we compare ourselves with others. And, and at both our churches, our focus is on him. Now, if you remember, two weeks ago, we started in the letter to the Philippians, written by Paul while he was in prison at Rome. And we're going to start there again today because Paul does address some of these financial issues with this church. It's a church, if you remember, and you could turn there, it'll be uh, towards the right-hand side of your Bible, and Philippians will be in chapter 4 again. And if you remember, this is a thank you note that he's writing to them, where he's kind of said, you sent all this money our way, and while I've been in prison, and I wanted to say thank you. You, you sent we want to say thank you for two things. You sent Epaphroditus, this amazing man who's come and helped and worked with me. He's kept me company in Rome. I'm sending him back to you, but, but I'm keeping the money because I'm thankful for it. You were generous. Starting in verse 10, he says this. How I praise the Lord that you were concerned about me again. I know that you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. 
I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty one, with a plenty or with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. I love this passage because Paul, who's sitting here under house arrest, thanks them for their care and their concern. He's like, you, you paid attention to me when no one else really is. You took this offering up, and, and, and I just want to tell you, though, I wasn't in need. Like, I didn't need anything. I don't know. When I look at this, it's like, dude, you're, you're, in, you're in jail. You're in prison. You're under house arrest. What do you mean you don't need anything? Like, you can't go out and work. You can't do anything. Like, what is the deal? And then he drops the, like, the lesson of the day in this thank you note to this church. He says, listen, I, I didn't need it because I have learned to be, and what's the word right in there? It's I've learned to be content. I have learned to be content. Do me a favor. Go into the comments. This is your phrase today. I have learned to be content. Go ahead and type it in. I've learned to be content. This is the words of Paul. He says, I've learned to be content with whatever it is that I have. I, I could live on nothing or I can live on a lot. Paul isn't pressuring them for more money. He's not guilting them for sending too little, too much. That, that, it has nothing to do with what they've given. He's just saying, thanks for this. It's going to be helpful, but I didn't need it. Just so you know, I, I'm, I'm cool either way. I'm grateful, but I'm content. It's funny because he is a guy who's had almost nothing. And he's had almost everything. And either way, he says, I, I'm content. I can live either way with a lot or nothing. Now, for you numbers folks out there like me, I could see you squirming in your couches right now. And you're like, you can't plan if you don't know what you have. You can't make a budget to know where you're saving. You can't know what you're giving. You can't, you know, start a 401k or a 403b if you don't know what's coming in. Like, you, Paul's crazy. How, how do you do this? And Paul says, you know what? I, I could tell you, I have the secret to contentment. I have something so secretive. Do you want to know what it is? Do you want to know the secret to contentment? Go ahead and look at verse 13. His secret to contentment is something you probably already know. He says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. All right, I see your eyebrows coming in. I see that you're confused. I, I get it. Because you've heard this verse before, haven't you? But it's not in this context. You've grown up, if you, if you have grown up in a church context around a contemporary church culture, you've seen this on all sorts of, uh, yeah, I'll use the word tchotchkes, if you will. It's on journals and cups and, you know, posters. And uh, you've probably seen it on something, you know, like this where a guy is beginning to grab the top of a mountain and, and he's here, he's free climbing. And I don't know, I look at this and think he, he's looking for strength. I could do all things through the, you know, Christ who gives me strength to get to the top of that mountain. I'm like, yo, you need some wisdom because you've got the wrong shoes and clothes on, man. Like you, you climb, you free climbed the wrong way. Maybe you've seen it like this in these little memes where, uh, you know, I, I love this mom right here. Oh, I have felt that before. And we've all prayed that prayer, Lord, give me strength. You know, I could do all things through gives me strength. And, and I hope she made it out of 1999 well. I, I hope that her kids don't burn their faces on that stove and she finishes the call and gets a cordless phone. You know, like those would all be things that would help strength. But, but the truth is, this verse has absolutely nothing with accomplishing something more. 
It's not about doing an extra push-up, climbing the hill, or surviving the day. This verse has everything to do with saying whether I have a little or whether I have a lot, the financial position that I'm in does not matter at all because I can find contentment through the strength that Jesus Christ gives me. When I have him at the center, everything that I need comes into focus and he becomes what I desire and everything will work out. My worth, my value, my peace will not be found in a bigger or better paycheck, a larger cell in Rome, some more freedom if I can get in and out of this house. The situation, the material possessions, the paycheck do not matter. His peace and contentment come from Christ who gives him strength to stay focused on himself, on Jesus. Crossbridge, this isn't something we put on a mug of coffee and say, well, I could do all things through extra caffeine. No, I can find contentment. The secret to a content life is being okay with a lot or a little. And this isn't something that Paul just writes to the church in Philippi. He actually writes something very similar to one of his best friends and um, a young man that he's mentoring who's pastoring a church in Ephesus, Paul's favorite church where he spent more time than any other place. And when he goes to write a letter to this young pastor, he says, I'm going to give you some instructions on how to pastor. And in 1 Timothy, Paul writes to this young pastor in chapter 6, he says this starting in verse 2. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teachings, but these things are wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life, and anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way of becoming wealthy. Did, did you see what Paul just laid down there for Timothy? He's like, yo, heads up, man. I know you're pastoring this church. I love that place. But you have got to stay committed to the teachings that we know. You remember all those stories about Jesus we've been talking about. You remember all the things that he's been saying. You have got to hold on to those because there's some other people around this city who are pretending to be godly. They're pretending by taking these words of Jesus and they're twisting them around to you know, basically promote themselves and to get money. They're twisting the words of Jesus for their own benefits so that they could be rolling and, and they're flexing on this to become wealthy themselves. And he says, you got to do me a favor, Timothy, just cling to the words of Jesus. Hang on to the words of Jesus right now because it's going to get hard. And, and I'm just going to state it for what it is. This is true today as it was true back then. This is not just their issue, this is our issue today. And anyone who's going to look at the, the words of Jesus with you and tell you that the more you give, the more you will get is lying to you. That God's desire for you is to be so filthy rich, but you just gotta keep sowing seeds and you'll be rolling forever. You're not gonna read Jesus saying that. Our giving does not all of a sudden trigger God's material generosity in our life. 
That's not the way it works. But that's what these teachers are saying, and it happens today. It's what they say. We got to deal with that later. But Paul continues in verse 6, and he says, Yet true godliness with, what's the word here? Contentment is itself a great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. We can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Let us be content. We come up with all sorts of excuses and reasons why it isn't this simple. But we're going to look back at what Jesus says in a second. And, and I'm telling you now, Paul's just saying the same thing to Timothy that Jesus has already said. Commit to this, because when you commit to the teachings of Jesus, Crossbridge, Grace, hear me out on this. When you commit to the teachings of Jesus, this investment of dedicating our lives to his words produces godliness, and that godliness is more wealth than we could ever acquire. It has so much more to lead us to contentment. And he finishes up this encouragement with Timothy. If you look in verse 9, he says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation, and they're trapped by many foolish things and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and to destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from their true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. You know, I saw verse 10, that for the love of money is the root of all evil things uh, on a church sign about two weeks ago. And I was disappointed. Not, not that the church had um, quoted scripture on the billboard. I love that stuff. But I was disappointed because it didn't explain why this love of money was the root of many evil things. And it didn't give me any hope as to a different option. And I thought, what do I do with this? I, I wasn't frustrated, but I, I didn't have the hope. And Paul kind of says to Timothy here something like, listen, if you're going to pastor this church and you're going to love them, just so you know, they're more attached to their money than you think they are. And they're more attached to their possessions than they think they are. This is an emotional connection. And so you're going to have to talk about this, but it's going to get emotional. It... it it could trap them and they're not going to understand why they're scared about everything. It could, it could tempt them and they're going to want more and more of it. it. It's going to reveal these desires that they have for destruction because they're going to want to gain more, to spend more, to make themselves happy. But that's not where they're going to be happy, but they think it is. So do me a favor. You've got to commit to the teachings of Jesus and hold true regardless of what any of the other churches and pastors are saying. Stay on point with these true teachings. The emotional attachment that they have has the potential to grow into something so strong and so unhealthy. You, right? Do you see how he says it's got the potential for these roots for evil? Now, the roots, if you know what roots do, they, grow, they go deeper, they go wider. They continue to make whatever they're fueling stronger. And when our attention has money and possessions at the center like our culture wants, the roots of that will be what? I need more money and possessions for a stronger tree with the fruit of what? More comparison and more jealousy. It's not their tree. It's not their tree, but it's better than their tree. And we begin to see a lawn that's filled with evil fruit. We never intended it to get that way, but we've taken Jesus from the center and security through money 
peace through investments, enjoyment through the 70-inch 4K TV. And we've lost Jesus. I think that's why I say, Timothy, I, I, if you want to be rich, focus on contentment and godliness to begin with because no one can take that from you. Don't get attached to money. And I love that Jesus addresses money all over. This isn't a, you know, Pastor Jimmy or Pastor Dave thing that we, we feel like we need to address. Jesus talks about money almost more than any other topic because people continue to bring it up to him. It's not like he brings it up. They ask him his thoughts. And I love if um, one of the stories that I would love to tell you that Jesus tells is actually found in the biography about Jesus written by Dr. Luke. It'll be over in chapter 12. And if you remember, this is one of the most detailed biographies of Jesus. And as Luke begins to write this story, he's, Jesus is going to tell a parable, which is a story with a point. So some things in the story are going to feel exaggerated. That's on purpose to prove a point. And, um, you know, so just keep that in mind. If you jump into Luke chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 13. And this is just simply what it says. Then someone from the crowd called, Teacher! Please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now, in chapter 12, he's surrounded by a whole lot of people and this huge crowd, someone like is, is trying to come and they use the word teacher here, which is really important because in this culture that he's in, surrounded by a Jewish community, this teacher is another word for rabbi and rabbis would actually travel around giving judgments on what different people should do based on the Levitical law. Should they, you know, divide things this way, that way? How should they do it? And so they're coming to him to say, Jesus, I know there's a huge crowd, but you got to pay attention to me right now because I got a money issue and I need your opinion. I need some legal advice and make sure it matches me and tell my brother. There's no way for us to know if the legal ground for this request is legitimate or not. And to be honest, it really doesn't matter because Jesus is going to take this as an opportunity not to, um, you know, judge an area that is easy in dividing a field, but instead to judge something that none of us are equipped or asked to judge. And that is simply the motivation and the attitude that this person, this, this random crowd man has towards money. Verse 14 continues in the story and Jesus tells them, he says, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? He said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life's not measured by how much you own. And then he told him a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and my other goods, and I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. I don't know if you've ever asked someone a question and then you got an answer you didn't like. I am positive this guy did not like the story Jesus just told him. He starts out that story with like, yo, you just better be careful, guard against every kind of greed. What was the guy coming to ask for? Where's my portion? Where's my share? Hook me up. And Jesus is like, ah, I see what you're going after here, but 
that's not what you want your life to be defined by. And this story has a way of cutting to the heart for all of us. The man in the story is managing a fertile farm, right? His fields are overflowing. And there is what? What's the word that it uses? There's a surplus of crops. Note that, that more crops in this story wasn't a blessing. It caused more work. Right? He didn't say, oh, look at all these crops. I'm going to share with my family. Just everybody come and get it. He said, I've got more crops. What do I do to keep what I've got? I will do more work in tearing down barns that are already here that hold enough for what I need. And I'll build something bigger so that I don't have to do something later for years to come. When God speaks to him in this moment with all the extra work, he's saying, you fool, and the word fool that's used here, Jesus is using a very specific term that's used all the time in the Old Testament to refer to the Jewish people at that time, the people of Israel who said, I know your instructions, God, but I'm choosing not to obey them. And God would say, this is foolishness. And the word that Jesus uses here, he's like, your foolishness to this rich man is not that you had a surplus, but that you think you could store up enough to cover yourself. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, and this is what you want to be known for? You didn't obey the instructions. The instructions are to give generously. Jesus gets right to the point. You've got extra, and your first thought is about holding on to it? You've worked hard to save? What's going to happen? And then he cuts so deep in verse 21. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. In this life, whew, if we're going to put a massive amount of effort into banking something, it should be investing in our relationship with God first. Not our money, not our possessions. And I recognize this is a tough teaching, and I'm sure, like, like myself, you're probably looking for the exceptions. You're probably looking for the ways around it. Yeah, but Jimmy, you don't know about this part of my story. You don't know about that. You're probably thinking, yeah, but my situation's different, to which I would say, I don't care what your situation is. This isn't situationally based. All of us have been given something, and God's saying, would you focus and invest on me First, I'll cover what you need. You want peace? Great. Trust me. I'll cover what you need. Are you worried that your brother's getting more than you're getting? Are you worried and is your heart motivated to a point where you're thinking, I, I, I need more security because I don't know what the future holds. So if it comes my way, I better save it and hold on to it because... Like, don't want to grow up poor, and we fear insecurity, and so we cling to money for security and hope. And I think that's why 10 verses later, Jesus says in the same chapter, seek first the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. God is not saying, trust me, risk your financial situation in life, and I'll watch you squirm. I'll make you pay. No, he's saying, when you keep the kingdom of heaven at the center of what you do, the life that you live and in investing here will look so different to everyone around you. And I'll give you what you need, I promise. I am faithful. You remember two weeks ago, we talked about wants and needs, and there is a difference. And if we keep sent God at the center of what we do, I truly believe the desires for what all our wants are 
begin to come into focus based on what we need. And does this mean God says, well, I don't want you to have wants then. I don't want you to have, you know, the nice things in life. No, no, no. This guy's got a barn where he was full. It was full. But it was the surplus that God's like, you had more than you needed. You were good for the year, man. Now you lost it all. Jesus had a very strong opinion about this, and I'm not sorry for explaining this to us because, like Timothy, Paul says, you got to teach these things. Don't let other people teach wrong stuff about money. you got, you got to handle this. It's emotional. It was actually even at the very center of his last confrontation before um, his last public confrontation. Believe it or not, Jesus, at the very end of his life, finds himself in the temple. And when he finds himself in the temple, he is people watching. He's sitting on a bench. And do you ever like to people watch? You see what people are doing. And he's kind of like, ooh, look at that. He's sitting on a bench. His disciples are kind of everywhere. And he's in what's called the court of the women, which is where all of uh, the Jewish people could go. And in the court of the women was something very unique. And it was the treasury. It was this place where you would go to give your tithes, your offerings, which was how they would give 10% of their income and their money. That was what was asked of them. And they would begin to, you know what, let me read it for you really quick. In uh, Mark chapter 12, this is what Mark says. He says, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple, and he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. And many rich people put in large amounts, and the poor widow came in. And then she dropped in two small coins. He's watching, but their offering plate looks different than ours. Instead of being a basket or, you know, an app you click or jump online or an office door that you slide it in on Sunday, they would have, uh, if you remember going to the mall back like 15 years ago before COVID, um, they used to have these ways of collecting donations. You know those big giant cone circles that you would put a coin in and watch it like, whoa, whoa, and you would put it on two sides and see if you could have like a coin war and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of the picture I want you to have. They would have about 12 or 13 of these giant horns and they were made of metal. So when you dropped a coin in it, it would be loud. Now, if you're rich and you're dropping these coins in, what are you going to get? Something real loud. It was a way to demonstrate, look how much I'm given. And we have this com contrasting picture of these rich people and then this poor old widow who dumps just two coins in. And those two coins, if you look at uh, the Greek and what Jesus is talking about in here and how it's explained, he's really talking about something that's worth less than pennies. There's almost nothing to this. So Jesus is hanging back. He's watching these things. And then in verse 43, it says, Jesus called to his disciples to them and he said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow is given more than all the others who are making contributions for they gave a tiny part of their, what's the word here? Surplus. But she, as poor as she was, is given everything she had to live on. What a lesson. And notice Jesus is not shaming the rich person here by any means. He's just pointing out that they're giving so much, but what are they giving so much of? a small portion of their extra. This isn't costing them anything. This isn't sacrificial. This isn't trust. It's easy to give away what you don't need. We don't understand that in our culture, but there it would be easier. Everyone around them probably thinks, look how spiritual these people are. Look how much money they give. Wow! And then no one notices this woman except for who? Except for Jesus, and when he sees this demonstration of faith, he does the one thing, his last full lesson in public, and says, disciples, get over here now. You've got to see this demonstration of faith. This is trust. Their eyes would have never seen her because her portion 
was insignificant, even though her proportion was heavenly. As we look at the story of Jesus here, I bet if this woman were around today, I think that most of us would probably tell her, save that money. You, you need to take that money and invest it. You need to try to get to a place where you could be more secure with your life, where you've got, you know, investments. And, and when you hit a certain place of comfortability, then you can begin to give back. But don't give yet. Don't be generous yet. You don't have enough to do this. And, and when I look at this, I'm thinking as we close out today, my heart's heavy because I think it's so much easier for us as disciples of Jesus to make excuses about our finances and say, not yet, God, when God says yes now. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. When we tell God all the time, when I hit this financial mark, that's when I'll start to give. That's when I'll live generously. That's when I'll be okay. And God's saying, I don't care if you're okay. Do you trust me? Are your eyes on me? Or are they comparing to the people around you because their grass is green? But if people looked at yours, would they see Jesus? Because this is a huge part of our life. And we're so busy comparing that we miss that our story with our finances and our possessions really, really matter. And if someone sat down with you today and looked at your taxes, would they see the teaching and the philosophy and the lifestyle of Jesus that Paul teaches Timothy about in your tax forms? Or would it look like everybody else's? I hope and I pray honestly, that I continue to get flagged even more and more and more down the road to maybe one day an auditor from the IRS calls me and says, something's wrong. And I can say, oh, that's Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And the opportunity isn't I'm getting busted. It's, oh, you called. IRS, if you're listening, I want to tell you about Jesus. Ask me. It's why we do what we do. It's why we do what we do at Grace and at Crossbridge when we give generously. And you might be thinking, Jimmy, I can't take that risk yet. And I just want to say you can't afford not to do it. Stop looking around. Stop comparing. Whether you have almost nothing or everything that you need, focus on Jesus, determine your need, and then step towards him in a lifestyle of increasing generosity. And if you think, I can't do this, I would say, sure you can you got a mug that tells you you can. You could do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Stop thinking it's for push-ups and start knowing it's for giving. Crossbridge, Grace, I'm proud of you. But I'm going to challenge you. Take the strength of Jesus and live it out in this way. Let your story shine from your generosity and point to Jesus over and over and over. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that you have demonstrated complete giving to us through Jesus Christ. And Jesus, I thank you that you have demonstrated complete sacrifice for us by dying on the cross and inviting us into a relationship with you. And we deserve nothing. You gave everything. And yet you call us to the same type of life. And I confess that it's easy for me to make excuses about that. And I can find every way to justify why I should just get what I need all the time. 
to worry if what I'm giving would make a difference if I went to this, this, this. I'm sorry. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to turn towards you and that our churches would be examples of Jesus in how we give. We give so that we have what we need, but then out of that surplus, we're not building bigger barns, but we're caring for people like you've called us to. God, I thank you so much for the freedom and the privilege to walk through your words together. We love you, and it's in your name we pray.